Today, I want to share a story to help frame the reality we are about to talk about. It's the story of Hiro Onada. He was a Japanese citizen with an ordinary job. He worked for a Chinese trading company. But at 20 years old, he answered the call to join the Japanese army and eventually became an Imperial Army Intelligence Officer, with which came a training in guerrilla warfare, so that he could go into enemy territory with a small band of soldiers and disrupt enemy operations. Now, I'm going to offer some foreshadowing. This story tugs at a certain tension in the soul. I'm not using this story as a negative example of what not to do. In in fact, in some ways, I admire Hero. But this story does unveil a human tendency. I don't think Hiro chose this fate. But we can use his story to make sure that we don't intentionally embody the same kind of fate. So on December 26, 1944, Onada was sent to Lubang Island in the Philippines with the following orders. You are absolutely forbidden to die by your own hand. It may take three years, it may take five, but whatever happens, we'll come back for you. Until then, so long as you have one soldier, you are to continue to lead him. You may have to live on coconuts. If that's the case, live on coconuts. Under no circumstances are you to give up your life voluntarily. Now, things didn't go so well for the Japanese military at this time in the Philippines, and Anata didn't have much help from his allies. Most small bands on the island had been killed off, but Hiro continued to execute his mission quite well. The small band was also incredibly diligent in rationing supplies, food, water, tools, equipment, weapons. And then comes October, 1945. A raid on a farm had happened, and they were trying to get some food, and a cow was killed. So Hiro's band came across a leaflet after this happened, and it was left by a local islander, no doubt wanting to avoid you know, having more livestock killed. And it read, The war ended August 15th. Come down from the mountains. But in the midst of this situation, and in the minds of these intelligence officers, there was no way that Japan had lost the war that quickly. This was, of course, Allied propaganda, trying to get them to give themselves up. They were still being fired upon, so the war had to be still going, right? And remember, this is before our technological communication systems. These guys are in the middle of the jungle with no communication from superiors. Do you think they're going to believe an informal leaflet by a common villager? Now, later that same year, the locals were at their wit's end with being raided and shot at. So they got a plane and dropped leaflets all over the jungle with an order to surrender from their general. But upon scrutinizing the leaflet, the band was skeptical. It was discussed how they would be returned to Japan to surrender. That means Japan would have lost, which, of course, to them, was impossible. And if Japan had won, of course, they would come and get their diligent intelligence officers. This had to be the Allies trying to trick them because they were so successful. All of these attempts were seen as an elaborate hoax. You see where this is going, kind of. Because years passed, and this small band of four soldiers dutifully continued their mission, even when they noticed a sharp change that they never saw anyone in military clothing. Everyone was dressed as civilians. They thought it was a setup to lure this small band out because they'd proven they couldn't be defeated. 
Because why, after a successful raid, did they send out search parties? Eventually, everyone became an enemy trying to trick them. Even when Japanese people were sent to get them to come home, these must have been Japanese prisoners forced to do the Allies' work. So five years in, one of the four remaining members decides to surrender, and he didn't tell his compatriots. Because of this, Onada became even more secretive and cautious. They went deeper into hiding. They took fewer risks. Because surely, this compatriot, you know, he would have been captured. And he'd give them up. Another five years passed, and one of the members got killed in a skirmish. Now there was only two of them. And this continued for another 17 years. The two of them waiting for Japan to send more troops who they would train and then retake the island. They were just following their orders as diligently as possible until their commanding officers came and got them as promised. 27 years in, Anata's last soldier was killed. Upon hearing this, the Japanese were surprised. They honestly thought that the whole band must have been dead, which made them wonder if Onada was still there. So they sent a search party to try to find Anata. But after hiding for 27 years, Onada was pretty good, and the mission continued until 1974, when a college student decided to travel the world and find Anata, who had become a sort of mythical legend at this point. And the student found him. But Nada, of course, didn't believe the student. He would only listen to the original commanding officer. And at this point, that person had retired from the military. He, literally, he worked in a bookstore. The now retired officer was then forced to come back and told Nada that they had lost the war and he was to surrender. Can you imagine this? I mean... Just on the surface, imagine feeling like you had just wasted 29 years of your life. You've killed, you've raided, and it was all for nothing. And what of his friends? Like, they didn't need to die. I cannot imagine that experience. I mean, just think of culturally and sociologically, the technological progress, the the world events. What about his family? His experience of the world was dedicated to one thing, and it was all for nothing. So on March 10th, 1975, at the age of 52, Hiro Nada, in an incredibly clean uniform with a dutifully polished and cared for rifle, left the jungle, surrendered his sword. He was pardoned for his crimes due to the fact that he thought the war was still occurring. And there's something heroic about this man. Yes, he, he murdered. Yes, he failed to see reality, but he stayed so true to himself and his word, facing death every moment of every day for almost 30 years. Like he certainly handled adversity with courage and dedication that's rare, but none of it was real. He lived a lie and he did so with utmost confidence that he knew reality and everyone else was wrong. And in much different circumstances, We often do the same thing. My name is Tyler Kleberger, 
and this is becoming human. And you know, whether it's science or philosophy or psychology, theology, history, you know, really any field imaginable, my goal is to discover as much as I can, share it with you, and ask, what do we do with this? Sometimes this includes challenging assumptions or you know, pulling back the curtain on norms in society. Sometimes this simply means exposing us to information that could catalyze growth. But the hope is that our shared discovery of the world will help us better traverse it. That's why this exists. So today, we're going to explore the nature of perspective and what it means for how we view ourselves and how we interact with the world around us. And this is sort of the denouement of the last few episodes. And while this information is fine on its own, you know, this helps fortify the topics we've been discussing lately about change, conflict, having a posture of curious traveling, and, you know, the dance of philosophy and ethics. So some of this we've already touched on, but now I want to take a more zoomed-in look on our perspective and how it affects our trajectory in the world. There's two basic ways that we know things, that we have a perspective, and it's quite fragile. So how should we interact with this? And listen, if you're willing to subscribe, I'd be honored. If you're willing to share the show with someone you think might enjoy it, I'd be very grateful. I mean, seriously, the only way people are going to find out about this is word of mouth. I just, I just can't commit the energy to play the podcast marketing game. I just can't. And listen, if you want to connect, feel free to get a hold of me on uh, Facebook or Twitter. But enough of the posturing. Let's get into it. Let's learn. Let's grow. And let's become a little bit more human. I want to start today by discussing one of the most famous concepts in philosophy, Plato's cave analogy. And I'm assuming that if you're into this kind of stuff, you've already heard or interacted with and thought about the cave. Or if you haven't heard of the cave, then I'm assuming you probably don't care for a full treatment. So to not bore those who are already familiar and to not bore those who don't really care, here's the short version. First, Plato is trying to make a case against what is today called empiricism, okay? Knowing things based on experience and observation, using your senses to obtain data, and therefore you know how things are. That's empiricism. Plato liked to think that humans were very limited, flawed, and fallible creatures. So in order to come to conclusions, people need to use rational logic and reason. That was the case he was trying to make. So he uses this, what's sometimes called theory of forms. And it's quite simple if you think about it. He said that there's an ideal form of every single thing, from love or justice to trees. Everything has an ideal form. So in order to uh, kind of make a case that humans are pretty dull, he said none of what we experience, you know, what we observe is that ideal form. Now, I'm not saying that we should fully buy into rationalism over empiricism, but I can't help but think he kind of has a point. In other words, I think Plato would hate social media. Yeah. Especially if people were determining truth by just listening to what other people said from their limited finite experience and then just taking it as true. Whatever we perceive or observe 
for Plato was an inferior copy of the real true forms. Again, I don't think Plato's absolutely right here, and lots of people have debated this over time. But the idea that you should listen to someone just because they spout something off, that's worth questioning. Plato's trying to emphasize limitations of mortal, mortal finite human beings, that our perspective is a mix of reason and experience that is limited. Truth for Plato, then, could only be discovered by obtaining wisdom, you know, according to these eternal forms, you know, that transcend messed up humans. You could only conceive of those, therefore, with proper logic and reasoning, even though that's based on your experience. We'll get to that in a minute. So he said, we can't trust our perceptions. So we need to curiously ask questions using the Socratic method, of course, that we looked at in the first two episodes. And through our reason, we can get a little closer. So he gives an analogy. Because human existence is depraved, everything we see is a shadow of these true forms. And honestly, you know, we probably would be confused if we saw the real true form of something because we're so used to these inferior copies of things. So he says, it's like we exist in a cave where we're we're chained to a post and can only see the back wall of the cave. But at the mouth of the cave, there's this light, you know, from the fire or the sun. So we see these shadows on the wall and our perception of what is real is actually a shadow. You know, we see a shadow of a person and we go on thinking that must be what people are. Now, what might happen is that we may find our way out of our shackles and start seeing the walls of the cave and the objects in the cave. And maybe we might just make it outside of the cave and see reality and see the light. But if you lived in the cave your whole life, you might see reality and think it is a lie because it doesn't match your ingrained perception. Or what happens if you go back into the cave and you try to explain to someone what you saw? Would they believe you? Or what if someone else came to you while you were still stuck in the cave and said, no, that's not a person, that's a shadow. A real person looks like this. The point was that we would probably disagree. But the larger point of Plato's analogy of the cave is that our sensory experience of the world is not a true reflection of the world. And so whatever perspective we have is based on a diminished version of what is real. Perception for Plato is not reality. And therefore, we have to use logic and reason and true knowledge, void of our sensory experience, to arrive at the truth of ideal forms and reality. Now, what this is about is this weird word I've used the last few episodes. Epistemology, or how do we know things, and how can we know what is real? And within that, there's these two major categories. Empiricism versus rationalism. And so epistemology says there's two basic ways people can know things. Rationalism being logic, reason, um, and then empiricism being observation and experience. And if if you need more details on that, episode 16 and 17 dives in. But here's a quick recap. Rationalism is the idea that our sensory observations and experiences are fallible. Because we are, you know, finite humans and we can't experience everything. So we have to use knowledge and reason and logic to come to any sensible conclusions. Empiricism is kind of the opposite. 
It says that our sensory observations and experience are the only tools available to us to collect real measurable data about the world and come to sensible conclusions about it. This is at best, you know, good science. That's what it's doing. It's based on empiricism. At worst, this is what happens when someone claims a truth simply because they've experienced it. It's also experience is unavoidable. Even the best attempts at logic have to utilize, you know, the specific mind and eyes and experience of the one doing the reasoning. This is the whole issue of phenomenology, that your perspective of the world, your your ability to navigate the world is based on what comes through your eyes and through your specific mind. And there seems to be a requirement when we talk about empiricism versus rationalism of a healthy balance between the two where rationalism is kind of like the software of our minds and experience is the key to unlock any data we pursue. So how do we know what is real? And there's a chance we hear this and we go, yeah, the cave. So-and-so is definitely in the cave. They think they know what's going on, but they have no clue what reality is like. They just live in their own small world. But part of Plato's intention, I, I believe, was to get people like us to consider, what if I'm in the cave? What if my perception and perspective and assumptions about the world are actually inferior copies? What if I'm wrong? And this brings us to our point. Is there a fragility to our perspective? We are finite and are dependent on our experience. But our experience can never fully experience every single thing. It's, it's limited. It might also be flawed. Can we even know anything at all? And this is actually a huge debate throughout most of history, written history at least. And it's epistemology. So, so we need to talk about these two ways we know things. And what it means for our certainty and confidence in our perspectives. If they're limited and finite and myopically egocentric... How do we interact with this? Let's go back to the whole notion of wisdom in the first place. You know, you might consider yourself wise, or maybe there's somebody in your head that comes to mind when you think of the word wisdom. The confluence of philosophy and ethics, that's how I think about wisdom. You know, we need to understand the world as much as possible so we can rightly live in it. We, we need to know and we need to enact what we know. We need to be curious and we need to apply our findings. The theory leads to practice. That's my assumption here. Which means your perspective, even if it's messed up, even if there are problems with empiricism or rationalism, it's going to determine how you live. So what if your perspective is wrong or limited or an immature version of the full thing? What if your perspective is fragile? That would really cause a problem for being human. And, and this is why people have taken this conversation so seriously. Now, we're going to cover some ground here, and, and the cornucopia of concepts can be devastatingly overwhelming. Some of this we've mentioned before, you know, methods of moral reasoning, modes of persuasion, sources of moral authority, and, and some's going to be new, you know, this empiricism versus rationalism depth, or the different types of truth, or ethical systems, etc. And this can get complicated, which, which to me is all the more reason that we should talk about it. People are so confident in what they think and what they do. But if you ask them, how did you come to that conclusion? 
you might find that they can't really articulate the plethora of pieces influencing them or the things that they left unexplored. So if you hate this stuff, I get it. You're going to want to skip to about the last five to 10 minutes of the episode, but I'd encourage you to give it a try. I'm going to try to make this as engaging as possible. And if you're willing to endure, there's an intentional process I'm about to put you through here that could be helpful to understanding the actual issue going on with the cave of life. Because what happens when we aren't aware of these things is the same as when we aren't aware of how the internet works. You know, when it gets broken or it gets in a situation where it isn't working, we're kind of lost without a map. We use the internet all the time the same way we use our perspective literally every moment of the day. And yet we, most of us don't know how the internet actually works. And unless we have some intentionality in recognizing the various concepts that shape our perception, then, you know, we're kind of wandering through our existential landscapes with banal confidence. Your knowledge informs reality. So what do we do if our knowledge is lacking? So let's dive into this component of epistemology, the nature of knowing. How do we know what is true and how do we know things in general? And the specific dynamic I want to emphasize amidst all these categories is the debate between these ways of knowing that Plato was so emphatic about in his theory of forms and the analogy of the cave. And when he concludes that existence is kind of like being in the cave, you know, we're working with inferior copies of reality because we're fallible human beings. What he's doing is he's siding with the rationalist. But just remember, for every rationalist, there's an empiricist. Because what the proponents of each of these concepts claims is that there is a right way to know things. There's a right way to form a perspective. There's a right way to determine what's true. But the issue we may end up seeing is that both of these ways of knowing have their own faults. And, and certainly, the idea of being certain about something may just be out of reach for those of our, us who are, you know, human. So let's break this down. There are three components of a perspective, fact, opinion, and preference. Now, fact is usually associated with logic. It's highly influenced by Plato's theory of forms. You know, there are certain ontological, I'll get to that word in a minute, and objective truths so that we can arrive at through reason and logic. Facts are things that can't be disproven. Opinion, then, is usually associated with one's experiences and what they gather through their senses. But then science came along and said, no, 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 we can only prove things with data from our sensory observations so that we can make sure that it's not an opinion, it's not based on your specific reasoning. Then we'll know it's a fact. At least it will be more factual than logic games. If we can collect, measure, and review correctly using the scientific method, you know, of Francis Bacon, then empiricism and sense observation won't be fallible. In, in fact, it appears that rationalism is the faulty, opinionated mode of thinking. And then you have preferences, which is simply how we select information that best applies to our context or situation. This is the issue of values that sometimes comes up in arguments. Now, hopefully, as I describe those, you found yourself going, oh, yeah, 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 data, measurement, that's important. We, we need to make sure we have that when we make an argument. Or if you find yourself going, 
yeah, there's something about sensory experience that, man, just gets so corrupted sometimes. Then, then you're being able to see that you kind of bend towards one form or another. But when you think about the various forms of truth, right? So you have objective truth, subjective truth, and relative truth. They run parallel here with fact, opinion, and preference. Now, I don't really want to focus on preference here. The, the debate is mostly between opinion and fact, and how we can truly arrive at facts, objective truth, and differentiate between what you know what's a fact and what's an opinion. You know, rationalism and empiricism are fighting for objectivity. Now, linguists have practically defined a fact and an opinion, that an opinion is something that can't, cannot be proven one way or another, but that's not necessarily what we're talking about here. We're talking about whether rationalism, reason, logic, or empiricism, sensory experience and observation, which one is better for arriving at truth. And behind the agenda of Plato in the cave analogy, he does bring up a tenuous situation that maybe what we think is fact is not actually a fact. Maybe what we think is reality isn't actually true. That what we call knowledge or truth and intellect may be pseudo-intellectualism, which I know has nothing to do with our current social climate today. People thinking they have the facts that are actually just opinions. Anyways, this is the debate on rationalism and empiricism. That's what this is trying to answer. How do you know if something is factual and true? How can we be certain about something? How can we know things so that our limited, finite perspectives aren't so fragile? So philosophers have taken up this mantle since recorded writing began. And we could go all the way back and get each philosopher's take on the matter. We're not going to do that. But just to show you the depth of the strand and, and to point out some of the variety I want to look at a few ways philosophers have said you can arrive at truth and how knowledge should be obtained. Again, epistemology. What's the best way to actually know and be certain about something? So if we look at early Western philosophers, the, the pre-Socratics they're called, you know, like Heraclitus, I've mentioned him before. People were trying to figure out during this time the, the origins of the world. And this is where a lot of those ancient myths come from, this time period. Someone like Heraclitus comes along and says, you can't figure that out because there's a limitation to human understanding and what can even be known in the first place. Truth is elusive. You have to use both as best as possible. That's one of the earliest stances. Plato and Aristotle come along. They have similar thoughts on this. Sensory experience was fallible. There's only one ideal. There's only one real form of something. They came to very different conclusions on where this comes from, uh, what it is. And this was based on their metaphysics. Okay, so um, the, the, the way the world works beyond the physical. But they said that arriving at knowledge, it, it can't come just from observing and examining alone because it's corruptible. Aristotle valued this a bit more. But... Reason was still the primary force for knowledge. Perception is not reality. Hence, you need reason. But then, this starts getting further. You get the skeptics, who came after Plato and Aristotle in um, Hellenistic philosophy. They took this 
to almost an amusing degree. There, there's a guy named uh, Piero who said that all sensory experience was corrupt. You know, you can't trust it at all. So the skeptics became known for suspending all assertions about anything until they were completely certain, which was, for them, impossible because humans are so limited and fallible. And there's stories about how Piero would just like run into people while he's walking because how, how do I know that person is real? It could just be my flawed senses deceiving me. And the stories surrounding this group, they're amazing. But they were against empiricism. But then we could consider Stoicism. It went a little less hardcore with this. The Stoics said that there is a governing reason embedded in existence, what would later be referenced as a priori knowledge. Humans for the Stoics, have access to this. It's what they called consciousness, that we're able to appropriately reason, which is necessary because our senses are fallible. Which, by the way, do you see how all of these start with metaphysical claims, you know, nurtured by physical claims, and then they produce ethics? And I'm not saying their metaphysical claims or their physical propositions are correct, but the pattern is a good one. And whether we want to admit it or not, We all function this way. But the Stoics had uh, a standard that they must live according to reason and rationalism, which is, you know, why you live in the first place. And they articulated four layers to knowledge. The worst form of knowledge is perception, empiricism, because it's flawed. Then you have assent, where you use reason alongside your experience or perception. Third was comprehension. And this was achieved by transcending your perceptions, you know, more like pure logic. And finally, when you had used reason to purely arrive at truth, you now had true knowledge. And having this meant that, you know, nothing could be able to dissuade you. So that's how the Stoics approach it. Very rationalist. But let's move on, because as you can see, early in the philosophical game, reason is championed. But as you leave what's called the classical age of antiquity, a different approach arises. And it's also important to note that this change, but also the pre-Socratics all the way to the Stoics, their contemplation is based on their social situations. And that changes again here. So, for example, the golden age of Islam worked against this emphasis on reason. So there's a scholar named Al-Kindi, who claim that you cannot arrive at truth through reason alone. You need both rationalism and empiricism. There's another scholar named Al-Ghazali, and he went further. He said that sense perception is useful for arriving at necessary truth. And this is because Al-Ghazali was trying to give a polemic against cultural indoctrination and authority. He was trying to distinguish between truth and opinion in reference to what authoritarian figures said, had to be true. This was a long time ago. This is still a debate today. See, most people, for Al-Ghazali, they just believe what authority figures tell them. And, And you're just getting their opinion then. They don't make the truth. And we can find out what the truth is by what the essence of something is, which is similar, by the way, to the theory of forms of Plato. But Al-Ghazali said you also need sensory perception 
based on what is self-evident in your mind. You need them both. And Al-Ghazali begins emphasizing the role of observation and examination because of the forms of truth being handed to people. They, they couldn't be trusted and they weren't healthy. So he talks about just questioning everything, even political leaders. And he goes on to say that there is a sensory approach that transcends reason and begins talking about the incoherence of philosophers. Again, this was so long ago. This, this is still great. And he says there's a difference between knowing and being, and the point is to be. So we need experience and reason and belief. We need our own judgment to help us filter what we're being handed. But most importantly, we need to live well. Philosophy needed to be put in its proper place. Needless to say, I like this guy. Now, he was also critical of experience and empiricism and worked just as hard to put it in its proper place because we are just as capable of relying too much on our experience and mistaking correlation with causality, which is technically how you define superstition. Another issue that comes up that's one of my favorites, superstition, seriously. And it's not just the overt acts of superstition. Like if I put my right shoe on last, you know, I'm going to have a bad day. So I need to make sure I put my right shoe on first. Superstition is falsely attributing some cause to some effect. And we brought this up in the first episode as, as an issue for how, you know, if we have no intention to explore and understand the world, we will be left with assuming particular correlations to causes which are not fully accurate. Even the most rudimentary of decisions are often the result of assuming something which is not quite correct. And this isn't, it's not the end of the world, you know, but why would you want to make that your prerogative? Like, why not at least attempt to understand causes and understand the world as much as possible? Because when we don't, you know, we're left with assumptions that singularly revolve around us and whatever conclusions we've made up until that point. You know, egocentric myopia becomes our default approach. And when we resort to answers that are contained to us and our perspective, we're not going to be anywhere near the certainty that we crave. So as a result, you know, when, when we do this, and all of us do this to some degree, we carry around with us a certain static ignorance, which, which we don't even consider. And then we start elevating opinion as fact. When our limited perspective is the final word, we assert a corner on the market of whatever is being discussed. And with bountiful confidence, we assume that the rest of the world must agree with us or they must be wrong. You know, we say the shadow is a person. The cave is reality. And there's a Greek word, amathea, which we will get into um, in, in a couple episodes. But our tendency to function only by our small world is the effect of superstitious thinking. And this leads us into another mess of confiscated issues. Either way, when you can see as you're looking through the history of philosophy, the shift where both empiricism and rationalism are seen as valuable and necessary. You need them both. And this is where we start running into a problem because reason can be misused and misunderstood, but experience is limited and flawed. Reason is not pure because it's shaped by our bias senses. And essentially, even the best reason comes from a limited, fallible experience of the person doing the reasoning. And what we start to see in philosophy is this emphasis that 
reason and experience may not be able to be separated. And, and this is the problem of consciousness, of, of being sentient, having senses and being aware of those senses. We see reason, rationalism, and logic. That's how we process the data of the world. But experience or empiricism is the key that gives us access to the data. You don't want to depend on just your sensory experience to come to conclusions because those will be limited and fallible. But no matter how rational you want to be, you can't take your experience out of the process of knowing. Reason will always be biased and dependent on one's experiential context, which is limited and fallible. A, con- a conscious being, right? Able to think, able to process things outside of experience. But then you're also absolutely dependent on your particular experience to access those thoughts and interact with them. We are not, we're not just physical stuff. And whatever you experience right in front of your face, you're not just that. But there is no such thing as pure abstract. They both exist and they are both quite interdependent on one another. So then the question becomes, can you know anything for certain? There are various ways of arriving at knowledge. Experience is unavoidable. It's going to play a role, even though it's flawed. And reason, it's noble, even if it's based on experience. And the conclusion of most philosophers as we enter the Enlightenment is that no, you can't know anything for certain. You know, even if certain philosophers claim that pure reason exists, like Plato, our finitude keeps us from grasping it fully. But then if you say that experience is the only way, which became the groundwork for science, and those who, you know, there's a group called the British Empiricists who said, yeah, no, this is how it has to work. Well, that's also limited, and it's subjective based on the person doing it. You'll never be able to fully experience every single thing and collect all the data. And we can look at the various philosophical takes on this, right? Especially in the Enlightenment, this comes up a lot, but I'm, I'm guessing you're pretty bored with that. You're waiting for a resolution for what all this means. What do we do with this? So let me just point out a couple. And, you know, maybe see which one you most agree with, if any at all. There's a philosopher known as Montaigne. 1500s, all for rationalism. Then he got in a traumatic horse crash. He had an empirical shift. And he goes on to simply say that you need to accept what you don't know. Nothing is so firmly believed in that which we don't know. And his biggest contribution is understood as to philosophize is to learn how to die. Don't come up with rules because there's always an exception. The abstract isn't that important. And while absolutes are noble, they have their limits. So we should pragmatically focus on what we will do now with the experience that we do have. And this becomes an emphasis of modern philosophy called pragmatism. But Montaigne became really introspective. He encouraged people to constantly think about the world so that they could come to terms with the complexities of things. But he also did emphasize how useful it was to exalt endless rationalization and intellectualism and logic. So you might as well accept your limitations, come to the best conclusion with your current experience, because facts will always elude us, and they're not that interesting anyway. But then we could contrast Montaigne with the more popular Descartes. 
Descartes, well, you know, while known for the famous, I think, therefore I am, he should be best known for his rigorous process of doubt and questions. Because he felt that, you know, sense experience was diluted. So he sets out on this journey to attain certainty. And you know how he's going to do it? Mathematically perfect laws. So his idea was that you have to establish first principles about how the world works, which will then inform everything else and start offering some certainty. But you could only do this through reason and logic because those things can't be interpreted. Where empiricism, you know, sensory observation and experience, it's based on how a subject interprets their experience of something. Experience is unavoidable, but we should try to avoid it. And, and Descartes raised good points. But much of later philosophy, you know, ends up setting out to resolve this question that he brings up. Now, another one later, David Hume, wonderful philosopher. He had this whole thing of is versus ought. That how you sense something is doesn't determine how it ought to be or how it ought to work. And he made the claim that experience and science and sensory observation can tell us what something is, but it can't tell us what something ought to do or be. If observation is your only basis for a worldview, it can lead to terrible decisions and even more dangerous outcomes, which is a similar emphasis to Al-Ghazali. After Hume, you get the famous Immanuel Kant. We've brought him up a couple episodes now. And he said that everyone is limited to their own perception, which is your experience and is not the actual your experience is not the actual external reality of the world. Yet in order, in order to be able to think about something or make a conjecture, in order to even be aware of yourself and consider rationalism or consciousness, he said there must be something that is external to human beings that we receive. This was called a priori knowledge. He said there has to be something like that that comes before us and exist apart from our experience. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to do any of these things. Let's just do one more for fun. Thomas Aquinas. This is because I'm a fan of Thomas Aquinas most of the time. He promoted something called natural philosophy, that we can observe the world, come to certain truth. Uh, and his take was that sense perception can lead us to logic if, if we are diligent about the process. And if we're checking our arrived at truths with other perspectives. So he comes to a balance. But this means, of course, that we can find truth everywhere. Very interesting. But I hope you're catching the problem here. If reason and rationalism, using logic, is the software for processing the data of the world, and your experience is the key that gives you access to that data, then you can't have one without the other. And if your subjective experience is implicating how you understand the world, then you as a flawed, limited being are always going to have a diminished understanding of the world. This is what people mean when they say, you know, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. The more you explore the map of life, the more you realize just how vast the map is compared to your current understanding. This is why people talk about learning as an endless journey. Because you, in your finitude, are forced to navigate the world based on what you can see. And you can certainly see more and more. 
but you are naturally limited as a human being in this venture of seeing everything. And all of these philosophical treaties, in some ways, they're all kind of correct. We should honor reason because we should be leery of our biased, subjective, limited way of experiencing things. But we also can't avoid how instrumental our experience is in coming to any conclusion. We had said in the first episode, all the way back, episode one, that philosophy and ethics, theory and behavior, they're dance partners. Well, in determining ethics, in considering how we should live and move in the world, in making decisions and believing certain things, we also need to see that reason and experience are dance partners. They intrinsically work together. And this is beneficial in some ways and devastating in others. This means that if our ability to know things is limited by default, then certainty is always elusive. And, and the Enlightenment philosophers sometimes seem a bit distraught that certainty isn't achievable. The, the pre-Socratic philosophers, the ones that said that change was illusory, they had to say that in order to give the impression that we could possibly know everything. But the reality is that whatever rationalism we pursue, it is going to be rife with epistemological assumptions. It is going to be affected by the way you arrived at those conclusions, which unavoidably involved your experience. When trying to think rationally about the world, you have to get out of your own way. The problem is, you can't get out of your own way. Each way of knowing has its issues in reality, and that comes at the expense of a much desired certainty. This is the case we've been making over the course of the last few episodes. Your perspective, no matter how refined or matured or seasoned and wise, it is still interdependently connected to your experience. And your experience is inherently incapable of getting to the bottom of anything. It's like you have to be able to see multiple angles of reality all at the same time and in real space, but you only have one pair of eyes. We all have a certain myopia, that plagues our interaction with information. And it's based on our very singular set of senses. And this doesn't have to be a bad thing. Yes, it makes certainty quite unattainable. But it also means that your particular perspective can be beneficial within the global mass of perspectives. And if we utilize particular angles from a variety of people to help come to conclusions about how we should live, well, now you see why map making, it's a great way to take advantage of the diversity of experience that are traversing the same world in different ways. And this also doesn't need to be a case of meaningless nihilism, right? Well, there's no point then if we can't know everything. This doesn't mean that nothing is true. It simply means that arriving at truth is much more complicated than we'd like to think. But filling out the map, it's still possible, given enough time and intention and involvement from others, there is much to be gleaned in the process toward truth. But what I think needs to be acknowledged the most, especially in 21st century America, is that we might not be thinking properly about our limitations and about the shakiness of our perspective. I mean... I completely get why various philosophers made the arguments they did about rationalism and empiricism. I get it. They're trying to give the best way possible to deal with the messiness that 
honestly, it reflects the geopolitical, sociocultural tumult that each found themselves in. But beyond the more abstract claims embedded in Plato's analogy of the cave, I think the thing we ought to give the most credence to is that we are all, in some ways, kind of in a cave. None of us are working with all the information. Part of the reason I put you through all of that stuff, which is to see how complicated the whole thing is. My goodness, wouldn't it be great if we could just be a bit more honest about that? I mean, just in this episode, do you think I covered all the information? Do you think I fully described everything? I don't have all the information. Everything I have said has been vastly limited by my own flawed perspective. We need to be honest about this. You often hear me say, you know, in my opinion, or you know, from what I've seen, and listen, I'm trying, I am trying to be as rational and objective as possible. I'm trying to capture the truth of things as much as possible, but I need to be aware that even if I am right, or just more right than something else, it's still limited. It is still simply what I have seen. And we all need to take that into consideration with anything that I say, and quite frankly, anything anyone says. Now, if you're a person who's pretty hardcore about certain truths, you know, some things are just facts. There are first principles that we can know with certainty. There's general objectivities, absolutes, that we can be sure of, all of that. I'm not saying you're wrong here. I'm definitely not saying that we should cease pursuing them either. I am saying that we need to be clear about the distinction of fact and opinion and that we should be honest about the inefficiency of our perspectives when claiming truth as facts. We need to be aware that holding on to these things with static assurance is going to keep us from moving towards those truths and facts. We need to embark on a process and acknowledge it is a process that you have not singularly finished. Real quick, you see this with the concept of deontology all the time, especially in our culture of the left debating the right. We think when we talk about how there's certain rules or laws or principles that are true in general and should be adhered to. You know, I also claim some of these. I also am willing to concede that I don't know everything about each particular principle or rule or law or objective truth or absolute. Especially, I don't claim to know everything about how it should look in specific circumstances. And this is literally a debate between moral absolutism or moral generalism or moral particularism. And we've seen again and again, historically, and in various cultures, that too static of a deontology causes problems. We've also seen it work in certain historical moments. But even these objective truths and absolutes ebb and flow. Why? Because our limited perspectives continue to see more and more. And how many cultures and people throughout history thought they finally nailed it? And we look back and we think, they had no clue the damage they were doing. Because they weren't working with all the information. And neither are we. And if you think that in 500 years, there won't be people who look back at us and think, how barbaric those 21st century people were, well, then you're not paying attention. I also find it interesting that often I will hear or read something from some supposedly primitive group and think, wow, they had this more figured out than we do. 
Like, that's the whole premise of idiocracy, right? And what do you think might cause supposedly progressed, advanced people to actually have less of the map filled out? Thinking that our version of the map is complete. That's actually the problem here. This is about acknowledging the fragility of perspective and how it results in a particular humility, in my opinion. So yes, let's pursue the facts. Let's also consider that we don't have all of the facts, that we're not working with all the information, whether the logical information, the scientific information, the experiential information, ad infinitum. Maybe you are, maybe you are the Nietzschean superman who does know everything. Maybe. But if not, be a little slower with your certainty. But also, be a little more clear about opinions. We live in an age where opinions reign as absolute facts. But we also have to see that our sensory observations and our finite minds don't have it all figured out either. And, by the way, this is called epistemic privilege, that someone who has experienced a thing should have a bolstered ethos or a bolstered credibility in discussing that thing. And it's a great way to get that part of the map from people who have actually been there, right? But I also see this used so emphatically, so it excludes any other mode of reasoning. You know, just because you have specific experiences of, of a certain thing does not mean that you have all the information about it. And that's okay. Maybe the point here with this conversation on rationalism and empiricism and the fragility of perspective is simply, you have your perspective and that's all you have. And if we can just be a little more aware of this complication of being alive, we can have better conversations. There is a danger to certainty. Whether that certainty has come from diligent exploration or well-handled experience, it's incomplete. Even if it's more complete than the person spouting nonsense on social media, it's still incomplete. But especially when such certainty has come exclusively from someone's experience or poor reasoning or some banal mixture of the two that is more interested in confirming myopic bias than actually discovering the map, that can be debilitating for yourself, for your relationships, and for society. At best, it keeps all of us from knowing the map. Your static claims withhold the gifts you could potentially offer. And at worst, it's downright dangerous. But before we see what all we ought to do with this, I'd like to end by having you consider a quote I love. Those with the strongest opinion are those who have thought the least about them. Those with the most adamant certainty probably aren't paying attention to the dance of rationalism and empiricism and probably aren't aware that even with the best intentions, our perspectives are incomplete and fragile. And we could all benefit from an openness to seeing and understanding more of the map than we do at present. So what do we do with this? When you're listening to someone else, be aware of how they're framing their argument, what form of rationalism or empiricism they're using, 
and acknowledge the limitations of it. And when you're the one doing the talking, don't be too confident because you might be in the cave too. So let's end there because now I think we have set up the conversation for how we correct this inherent human reality. How do we move as close as possible to a full map? And it all comes down to one very important, conversational, life-altering word. So I appreciate you listening to my fragile, limited perspective. And if I helped you on the journey of filling out the map, please go and capture the map even better than I have and keep the conversation going. See you next time. And if you're not sure what to do with all of this, always just assume that you are the one in the cave.